Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karaman, the great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountain and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Let's pray together. Father, this is a sobering text. It's a difficult to read text, and we wonder what the options would have been. We pray that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom so that our faith isn't undone by folly, but fruitful for your glory, for your kingdom, that we might be a testimony of light in this present generation. We pray this in the name of Christ, who guides us into all truth. Amen. Well, when uh, I have permission to tell this, uh, this story, when Emma was little, we, I had just gotten a smartphone, right? I had entered the new age of smartphones. I traded in my little candy cane phone for a droid, and I couldn't find it. It was like two weeks into ownership, could not find the thing. And if you've had little kids around the house, you know that one source of information is uh, about where lost things might be is, is your kids. So I, I went to Emma and I asked, you know, have you seen my phone? And she looked up at me so proud, so very, very proud. Dad, it takes bath. And I realized that my daughter, um, in an effort to show me great love and kindness, had, had washed my phone. 
in, in our bathtub. Uh, she was indeed right. The phone was, was in the bathtub. Thankfully, thankfully, the water was imaginary. Uh, so uh, it, was, it was spared a horrible death. But nevertheless, uh, what happened there is you actually have a situation where, uh, where my child is trying to please me, but due to just ignorance about the way the world works and transistors and things, she has made sort of a category mistake, right? And of course, it's ignorance, and so you forgive, and you go on, and you move, you move forward, no harm done. But the, the problem that this illustrates is sometimes even the best of motives can be fouled up by a lack of appropriate knowledge, a lack of uh, insight into the way in which the world works. And the stakes here in our passage this morning are much higher. I mean, uh, they are, this is a very serious thing that has done. And Jephthah, unlike my daughter, is very culpable for the thing that he does here. He should have known better. And he will be judged for his mistake, for his ignorance, for his folly. But it is the same kind of problem that's going on here. Jephthah has a noble desire. He wants to please God. He wants to draw near to God. He wants to find, uh, find his strength, his fortress in God. But he makes a terrible mistake in getting to that end. He makes a sinful vow. And it, it's a theme that we can trace through the Scripture. What we find in, uh, in the Bible is a consistent reminder that if you want to please God, you need to know God. You need to know what makes Him happy. You need to know how the world works. You need to do good science. You need to do good Bible reading. You need to, you need to have a good theology. You need to have a good philosophy to be able to do this well in order to know God. In order to please God, you need to know God. And uh, what this passage graphically illustrates to us is the paradox in knowing God. If you want to know God, you begin with the unknowability of God. If you want to know who God is, you have to begin with the assumption that God is unknowable. Right? If that sounds mysterious now, hopefully we'll unpack it uh, over the course of the next three points and we'll be able to kind of practically apply this in our lives. How do I get to know God better? Well, it begins with the unknowability of God. We're going to start with Jephthah's folly. We're going to look at what Jephthah does wrong. Then we're going to follow up with Christ's revelation, how Christ comes and speaks to us in such a way that it generates wisdom rather than folly. And then finally, we're going to turn and ask some very practical questions about then how do I, as a Christian, seek wisdom? So Jephthah's folly, Christ's revelation, and finally, our wisdom, Christian wisdom. First, uh, Jephthah's folly. We, we're going to be a little hard on Jephthah, but we need to start out with kind of a positive note. Jephthah, we could put it this way, uh, Jephthah meant well. Right? Jephthah's motives flow out of faith. So in the very first verse, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah. So Jephthah is going to war against the Ammonites. He's traveling to war, and as 
always happens when the big game or the big talk that you're going to give or the, the presentation that you, uh, that, that you have, what always happens is that anxiety starts to build up. And uh, for both Christians and non-Christians, one of our instincts when you hit that big moment, that do-or-die moment, is you pray. God, help me. We've been reading uh, Little Women as a Family, and there's this moment where Joe, uh, Josephine, she uh, is concerned about her sister Beth, who's very sick, and, and she does what every good Christian should do in those moments. She prays, and she, she makes a vow. Uh, it ends up being a good, uh, decent vow, uh, a, should be a sobering vow, but she vows to serve God. For, if you heal my sister, I will serve you forever. I'll do whatever you ask of me. It's a vow because of her humanity and sinfulness she will break. But it is, a, again, a vow that is made out of good motives. And we do that. And Jephthah is traveling to, the, to defeat the Ammonites, and he... He feels the Spirit of God, and he looks to God in faith, and he makes a terrible vow. His motives are right. He's actually commended for his faith in Hebrews. But like many other people in that Hebrews 11 list, you go down that Hebrews 11 list, and you find faithful people who through ignorance and darkness and sinfulness sin big sins. Right? There's no hero no perfect person on that list. But Jephthah's on the list as an example of faith, but also we can put him on the list of folly as well. We need to see what his mistake is. What, what happens such that to, to, to result in this? So that he's got this genuine faith, but it results in something that displeases God. What's going on? How does this happen? Well, first, I want, uh, we need to see that actually what Jephthah does... <clears throat> We can't, we can't, a uh, number of uh, scholars have tried to excuse Jephthah. They've either tried to say, okay, what he does isn't bad at all. And the way you do that, and it starts in the Middle Ages, the way you uh, exonerate Jephthah is you say, well, he wasn't, wasn't a literal burnt offering. He's, it's not a human sacrifice. What's actually going on is Jephthah dedicating his daughter to the Lord, to the Lord's service, similar to what um, a later uh, writer will do with, uh, with, sorry, the, with uh, not Samson. Well, uh, uh, man, the name is slipped. She dedicates her son to the, to the Lord's service to priesthood, and he takes a Nazarite vow. Maybe there's some sort of female version of that going on here, a kind of commitment to, for her to go to a nunnery, and that's why the virginity stuff is all of there. She's lamenting the fact that she will never have a family. The problem with that is that last verse, that the daughters of Israel lament the daughter of Jephthah for, for four days annually. It's hard to imagine that taking place if there's not a literal burnt offering, a, a sacrifice, a human sacrifice to God. The other way to get out of it is to say, well, maybe Jephthah thought that an animal would come out. He'd go home and that, like a donkey, a beloved donkey would come out the door. Okay? Again, that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, just in general human terms. But uh, the, the other problem, the textual problem with that is this little line, whatever. 
then whatever comes out from the doors, and you'll see even in the, the text that's printed for you in the bulletin, there's a little footnote. And if you follow that footnote down, which you can't do, but if you followed it down uh, to its text, it would say actually probably whoever. Like it's, a per, it's not an impersonal pronoun. It's a personal pronoun. Jephthah is expecting a person to come out that door. So who is he expecting? Well, he's probably expecting a servant. He's probably not expecting his daughter. I mean, the likelihood, a big family, right, big household, the likelihood that his only daughter would come out is pretty low. He's expecting a servant to greet him and that this would be a tremendous act of faith. So what he would do is he would dedicate the servant to the Lord through a human sacrifice. And this would be an expensive and tremendous act of faith. It would be him demonstrating how uh, thankful he is to God that he'd be willing to dedicate this servant under his care unto the Lord, whichever so servant comes out of that door. So Jephthah is intending from the outset to make a human sacrifice. Where is he getting that? Like what goes on in one's head to get to that point where you're willing to do that? We've got to do a little history here because although this is unthinkable in our times, Jephthah is... Notice that no one bats an eyebrow at this. Like they're all sad that this happened. But no one goes like, hey, you can't do this. This isn't right. No one stops him. Jephthah thinks he's bound by this vow. He has a very clear solution, by the way, biblically. He has a very clear solution. Break the vow and experience the consequences for that on his own head, right? So if, if you've made a foolish vow, a vow that brings you into disobedience, a vow that's, that's like this vow, your obvious solution is to break it. Yes, you have made a vow to God. Yes, you will be punished for making that foolish vow, but the consequences would be on his head, not his daughter's. So he, he has an out, but no one bats an eyebrow. No one questions this. And the reason is, is because when you are ignorant of how to please God, you will fill in the gaps. You will fill in your theological ignorance with knowledge obtained from the outside. You will f- if, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't know what to think, what you do is you bring in things from the outside to fill in those gaps, to fill in the holes in your theology. Uh, I had my own moment where I was trying to please my parents and failed miserably when I was a kid. I was probably old enough to know better, but I was making cookies. I thought, I'll make, I'll make, I can make cookies. I can do this. But we didn't have enough sugar. You know, it's like a cup of sugar, and we had like three quarters of a cup. So I was like, oh, we don't have enough sugar. I can't drive. So you know what? I'll substitute with salt. Looks the same, right? It feels same texture. I'm sure it'll be okay. So, three quarters of a cup of sugar, quarter of a cup of salt. Obviously, these were terrible t- cookies. No one could even pretend to like them. It was, you know, isn't it? What you do is you've got this emptiness. You've got this hole in your theology. And what you're going to do is you're going to pick out the next available, what's around you, to fill in the gaps. And this is what Jephthah does. He is, ign- he is not studied the Torah. He is, he is clearly not uh, hearing good biblical teaching. He hasn't been told about the prohibitions, several prohibitions 
in Deuteronomy, in Exodus, in Leviticus against human sacrifice, that this is an abomination to the Lord. He hasn't been told to, that part of his job is to resist the things that the Canaanites have done. He is a conqueror and he's thinking in conquest terms and he's ignorant. And so he, what he does is he takes his theology from the culture around him and this would be a normal thing for a Canaanite to do. It's abhorrent to the Lord our God, but it's normal for the Canaanites. And he receives his theology not at temple, not at tabernacle, excuse me. He receives it not from the, the teachers of the day, not from the scriptures that have been given to him. He takes it from those around him. He weds his faith, his admirable faith, with dark thoughts, dark knowledge obtained from the Canaanites that he is trying to throw out. Another aspect of that knowledge is the, the Canaanite belief, the ancient belief, that you can control the gods. You can induce the gods through prayer, through dedication, through vows, through offering, through sacrifice. You can induce the gods to do things that you want them to do. And the Israelites, they have this sacrificial system. And what happens is, if you're not well-educated in what the Bible says about that sacrificial system, what you can do is you take the theology attached to other communities, other sacrificial systems, the Canaanite ritual, the Canaanite cults, and you put them, impose them on what God has given. God has given the sacrifices not to control God, but to remind God of the great sacrifice that He will perform when He sends Jesus Christ. That's what the sacrificial system is designed to do for Israel. But Israel, they mix it up sometimes because they get their theology not from Scripture, but from the cultures around them. The result being that they think God likes sacrifice. And the bigger the sacrifice, the better it is. And they lose the symbolic meaning of these things so that it's not about the spotless Lamb Jesus Christ, but it's about God who loves human sacrifice. Jephthah thinks he can manipulate God to do what he wants, and he manipulates God in the manner appropriate to a Canaanite deity. And the results are tragic, not only for Jephthah, not only for Jephthah's daughter, but all Israel. If you read the book of Judges, you will find what one scholar calls the Canaanization of Israel. Israel becomes, over the course of this book, not pure and holy, but worse than the Canaanites that they were supposed to toss out, that they were supposed to eradicate. Israel falls by this kind of disobedience, ignorance of what the one true God truly delights in. So how do we correct this? How do we get out of this conundrum? Well, what Jephthah does Jephthah starts with the presumption that he can make God happy, that he can know who God is, that he can do what God wants. And notice that both Paul in the text that Rex read for us earlier and Jesus begin with a different presupposition. If you've got your bulletin with you, you can look at the very front, the words of Jesus in, the high, in, uh, in this prayer in Matthew 11. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 
Jesus begins with a radically different starting point than Jephthah, than the philosophers of the age. Jesus begins not with the essential knowability of God, not with the belief that God is basically like me, just bigger and stronger and better. He doesn't begin with the knowability of God, but with this statement that no one knows the Father. That God dwells in unapproachable light. He is the immutable, invisible God that the, the brightness of His light hides Him from view. He begins with the, what theologians might call the aseity of God. You cannot know Him because He is wholly other than anything in your experience. You see, you get to know other people because they're like you in some respect. You get to know big theological concepts because they're like small theological concepts. That's how we learn. We learn, we start with the known, and we learn that which is unknown as we compare it to that which we know. And we establish analogies and we build from the known to the unknown. The problem with God is that God is so high that He is unlike anything in this present creation. He is unknowable. And so Jesus and Paul, too, in Acts 17, He, he uh, rebukes the Greek philosophers of the, the day. He, he, he refers to this statue dedicated to an unknown God. And he's sort of back, giving the Greeks a backhanded compliment. On the one hand, he's saying that the Greeks have rightly recognized that they have to be ignorant of everything. They can't know everything. And there may be some God that they haven't accounted for who's displeased with them. But on the other hand, He's rebuking them because the God that they are declaring unknown is one that is, uh, that is actually revealed in His creation. Paul, like Jesus, begins with the unknowability of God in and of Himself, but then brackets that, adds to that, but this unknowable God has revealed Himself perfectly and clearly in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is incredibly practical, okay? If you're thinking, how do I please God? How do I know God's will for my life? Okay, this is an, it's, it seems really philosophical, but it's an incredibly important first point. The first thing that we need to realize is that you, by good exercise of, of a due use of ordinary means, but using reason and logic and all of these things, all the assets given to you, you on your own cannot find God. God has to find you. God has to speak first. God has to reveal Himself. The primary mode for learning about God is not to search, to listen to what He has said. Particularly what He has said in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, no one knows the Father but the Son, Jesus Christ knows God and reveals God perfectly in this created world, okay? So God has spoken in creation, through creation, but not in a way that we can uh, be redeemed from it. That's that uh, instruction from the Westminster Catechism there. It is Jesus Christ who speaks in such a way that our minds are enlightened, our hearts are changed, and we can know and see God. And there are four advantages to the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ over that which was available to Jephthah. 
Jephthah didn't have the full counsel of God laid out for him. Jesus Christ comes and he provides the full counsel of God. And there's four aspects to that. We'll do these quickly because I know we're get, it's getting late. We'll do these quickly, but four aspects of, of the superiority of Christ's revelation. You want to know how good this is? Well, first, it's higher. The revelation of Jesus Christ is higher than previous revelations in the Old Testament. It goes higher into the divine counsel because Jesus, unlike Moses, unlike David, Jesus is divine. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so he fully knows God, knows all his counsels, knows all that we need to know in order to please God. So his knowledge goes, it goes higher. But at the same time, he spreads that knowledge broader. This is what Paul is saying. He says, the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked. But now, Jesus is being revealed, proclaimed to all nations. In Old Testament times, for Jephthah, knowledge of God was for a select few. Israelites, the priests of Israelites, and particularly the high priest. Kings, prophets, these individuals had special access to the knowledge of God, and if they weren't doing a good job teaching, you just didn't have good teaching available to you. But what was once hidden is now proclaimed broadly and widely to all of the nations, so that we not only have a higher knowledge of of God, that knowledge is spread broader, so that all have access to it. It's third, it's clearer, just as Jesus is uh, uh, one with the Father. He's also a human being, and He perfectly understands and sympathizes with us and all of our weaknesses. He knows when our ignorance is getting in the way. He knows when we can't understand these things. And He walks us through it in such a way that He leads us from the unknown to known. He, He is able to do that, and He's able to do it in a way appropriate to who we are. He's able to lisp to us in such a way that we can understand. And finally, this knowledge goes deeper. It's higher, it's broader, it's clearer, and it's deeper. Because Jesus doesn't just communicate to our ears, He communicates to our hearts. He sends His Spirit. This is what He tells His disciples. Remember, He says, you can't understand these things now. It doesn't go deep enough yet. You hear it, but you can't comprehend it. What you need in order to take the next step is the Holy Spirit. And I will send that Holy Spirit to you, and that knowledge which is yours in your head will go deep into your heart and will change you from the inside out. It'll be like a seed which will glow, grow and flourish forever. That's what Jesus Christ brings. He brings the wisdom of God and He implants it in our hearts so that it flourishes forevermore. Okay, so now, what does that mean for us? See, it's easy to look at this Jephthah text and think, well, you know what Jephthah's problem was? Is he, was he was just a primitive, superstitious, uh, primitive, superstitious leader, war leader. He didn't have the advantages that we have in our modern world. We have science. We have uh, philosophy. We have all of these uh, assets. We have psychology and anthropology and all of these things which help us to process our world and to understand it better. And we wouldn't make these mistakes. And all of that is, to some extent, true. We do have these massive advantages about how the world works that Jephthah didn't have. But it's not going to solve the basic 
fundamental problem that we've been looking at this morning. How do you please God? Well, we please God first and foremost. If you want, if you're asking that question, and, and maybe it's a maybe it's a moral conundrum that you have. You know, what? How should I raise my kids? Or, or what's the right decision in this instance or that instance? How do I get through this situation? Maybe it's maybe it's God's will for your life. You know, how many kids should I have? What job should I take? Uh, do I need to do I need to quit this position and start another one? How can I better serve the church? Maybe it's one of those. Uh, kind of decisions among good options that you're kind of trying to struggle through. The starting point for us has to be with the unknowability of God, which means our basic mode for thinking about those questions is to listen. The basic mode by which we obtain knowledge and wisdom in the Christian life is through the ears, not through the mouth, not through the hands. We don't start with action, bold, faith-filled action. That's what Jephthah does, and it leads into all manner of trouble. We start with humbly bowing the knee and listening to what God has said. And God has spoken to us first in His Son. So we listen to His Son. We hear His teaching. We embed ourselves in His way of thinking such that we, we, we are able to project Jesus' own view of the world onto our own, and we, we see things differently now. We see the values that we previously held turned upside down so that servants are more valuable than masters because Jesus came to serve, not to be served. It transforms our view of the world so that we can see the world in a different way, and that enables us to make not only moral decisions, but decisions about how we live our lives in uh, very tangible ways, but we begin by listening to His Son. And we listen to His Son as His Son has spoken in the, uh, as the confession puts it, the various and diverse manner that He has spoken. So He has spoken to us in His Word, and the full counsel of God is included. Everything that we need to know to please God and to obey Him and to turn to Him is in the Word of God. It doesn't tell you about atoms. It doesn't tell you about engineering but it tells you how to please God. And so you can find the full counsel of God in the Word because everything that Jesus wants to teach us is embedded there. It's wholly included there. Not everything that Jesus said, John 23, but everything that, we need, that Jesus said that we need to know about is here in His Word. So we listen to Him in His Word. We ask good questions of the Word. Sometimes the Bible isn't going to answer that. It's not going to tell you whether you should be a scientist or a doctor or a dishwasher. It's not going to answer that question directly. But it's going to give you principles to follow. It's going to give you values to inculcate, which will help you process the world around you in such a way that you're able to make those decisions. It's given to us. We listen to a son. We listen to the Word. We listen to the church. I don't mean me. I don't mean this church. But um, we listen to the church as the church manifests itself both in the moment, in the now, through the preaching of the Word, through singing to one another, through uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, through taking counsel with one another and, and doing home fellowship groups and Sunday schools, all of those kinds of things. They're designed to embed us in the Word of God so that we think God's thoughts after Him. 
But we not only listen to the church in the here and now, we have the advantage of the church spread through all cultures in all ages. That's why we do uh, these confessions of faith, and they oftentimes come from catechisms and confessions that have been living words for the church that the church has settled on and said, this is what we believe, this is what we think, and this is what we want to pass down to our children. We don't do that just to fill time. We do it because it embeds ourselves in an ancient way of thinking, which derives not from human imagination, but from Jesus Christ. And finally, we listen to the way God has revealed Himself to us in our own hearts. Conscience is a guide. You need to resist Disney, let your heart guide you in all things, because we know our hearts are also corrupt. But if the Word of God dwells in you richly, if Jesus Christ fills you through His Spirit, then you have been cleansed and your, and your conscience, while still frail, while still fallen, speaks good things to you. You can listen to your heart and ask good questions like, well, what do I love doing in life? I want to know how to serve God, what job to take. What do I love doing? What gets me going? What drives me? And then you add in the values that you learned from, uh, from Christ, and you think, well, it's not just what drives me that matters. It's how I can be useful to others that matter. So what's something that drives me and is also useful to, a broad, to the most number of people so that I can be not only fulfilled myself, but a steward of the gifts that God has given to me. You see, you're listening to the way in which God has revealed Himself to you, and you're making a decision, and we can conclude with this. We're making that decision. We're, we're acting in such a way because we have hope that as the Bible tells us, He will guide us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what is desirable. He has told you how to please Him and how to live a fulfilled life. He has told you how to be fruitful in this world and yet honorable to the God who made you. And He's told us that through His Son, in His Word, voiced by His church, speaking even in our own hearts. So we have hope. We have hope to, in Christ, by faith, live a life of confession, but also of pleasing God. So they would bless our labors, that we might be fruitful in Christ Jesus and abound in every good thing. He will guide you. Let us listen. Let's pray.